Well, welcome again to King's Cross. It's so good to be with you this morning. If we haven't met, I'm Taylor. I'm one of the pastors here. And like a lot of other people, uh, I'm excited about August coming to a close, not just because it's been 4,000 degrees in Nashville, but also because today is the first Sunday this year following college football. Uh, if you're a fan, you know that, that yesterday there were, I don't know, a half dozen or so games around the country. It was rightly called week zero, not week one of college football, because zero of the games mattered yesterday. Sorry if there are any Vanderbilt people in here who squeaked out a win against Hawaii last night. Uh, but one of the reasons I love the start of college football season is that it, it puts an end to all the speculation that happens in the off season. The off season is all about people who don't know any more than you or I know about college football, getting paid lots of money by ESPN to tell you which teams are going to be really good and which teams are going to be really bad. And, and it's always the same thing. They're looking for certain key ingredients on a team to tell you if they're going to be good or not, right? You have to have to have a great coach. You have to have a good offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator to call the right plays. You have to have skilled players on the field. More important than anything, you have to have a good quarterback. Like You can have all the skill in the world at all the other positions, but if we're honest, if you don't have a good quarterback, you're, you're going to be mediocre at best, right? There are certain ingredients that go into making a good team. And, and similarly, there are certain ingredients to a thriving life. There are things that every human soul needs. There are, there are longings and cravings in the human soul across time, across space, across cultures that are so deep and innate and primal that we, we feel that we, we have to have them, we crave them, our souls even ache when they are absent. This morning, I hope to show you what some of those are and why the gospel of Jesus Christ, I think, is the key that unlocks them in your life. We're going to see this from Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, just one verse today. So turn with me there in your Bibles, Galatians chapter 2. Verse 20, Paul writes, by the Holy Spirit, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is the word of the Lord. What are the things that we all long for? I'm going to give you six of them this morning. I'm sure there are more, but I'm going to give you six of them. The first one is meaning. Every human being craves to have meaning in their life. The question, what is the meaning of life, is a question that is as old as time. Human beings have always asked this question. In fact, some people will tell you that that's the difference between human beings and animals, that we can actually ask the question, what is the meaning of life? Uh, there are several benefits, it turns out, to having a sense of meaning in your life. A few years back, University College of London uh, put out some research that showed that having a, a sense of meaning in your life has practical, physical benefits. Just having a sense of meaning leads to, among other things, <clears throat> a lower risk of divorce, increased connections with other people and in social and cultural activities, lower incidence of new chronic disease, lower onset of depression, lower obesity, increased physical activity. So it turns out that having a sense of meaning in life gives you all kinds of physical, practical benefits. But beyond that, we know that it's just psychologically and emotionally satisfying, right? To get up in the morning and feel like your life is connected to something that matters, something that's important. It's, it's psychologically and emotionally satisfying. But I would make the case that finding meaning in life 
has gotten harder and harder. Uh, in, in a secular age like the one that we live in, one of the, one of the big differences in modern secular cultures and historical cultural contexts is that every other tradition, every other culture has had some sort of orienting framework or story that they relate to, right? There's a big picture, there's a big story in life, and people find their sense of meaning by how they connect to that big story. Well, the, the very premise of our secular age is that there is no overarching story. There is no orienting narrative. There is no framework that we can all agree upon and look to to find meaning. And so what do we do? We have to say, in, in that framework, there is no objective meaning. And so people have one of two options. They can either confess that life is meaningless, but try to pretend it's meaningful anyway. Or they can just go full you know, nihilist and just admit that there's, there's no meaning in the world and live like it. So this is demonstrated well, I think, by, by two very different works of art. The first is a recent movie uh, that I saw last month. It's the, the latest Wes Anderson movie, Asteroid City. I don't know if you've seen this movie, if you're into Wes Anderson movies. Uh, but but there's, basically the story is there's like, a, there's like a play happening within the movie. So you have the actors and actresses in the movie, and they are also actors and actresses in this play. And there's one point toward the end of the movie where the main actor comes off stage, and he goes to the director, which is uh, my celebrity doppelganger, Adrian Brody, and he asks Adrian Brody, who's the director, he says, he's struggling to figure out if he's playing the part right. And he says, I, I can't know if I'm playing the part right unless I know what the story's about. What is the story about? What does it mean? And, and basically, Adrian Brody tells him, like, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know what it means, but you're doing great. You're playing the part right. Just keep playing the part, he tells him. And the thing that I took away from this, and maybe my uh, movie critic skills aren't up to par, but the thing that I took away from it was, this is a, a commentary on life, that we can't know the meaning. Maybe there isn't one. But the best thing that we can do is just keep playing our part. Keep trying. Keep living like there is meaning even if there isn't, because that's the best way to live. The other work of art uh, that, that demonstrates the second approach is a novel that was written more than 150 years prior to Asteroid City called Crime and Punishment uh, by Fyodor Dostoevsky. And the, the, the book Crime and Punishment is basically an exploration of this idea that if life is meaningless, then I can do whatever I want, right? And so the main character, is, he's, he's influenced by this philosophy and he thinks the world is meaningless and that strong people in a meaningless world can do whatever they want. And so he, he tries out that theory and it drives him crazy. Uh, he wants to prove to himself that since life is meaningless, he can, he can kill somebody and, and nothing bad will happen to him. And it quite literally drives him insane. So the problem with, with both of these approaches is the first is dishonest. Life is meaningless, but live like it's meaningful anyway. It's dishonest. But the second one, if you really believe life is meaningless, it drives you insane. You can't live that way. But the search for meaning goes on. The second thing that we all need is significance. We want to feel like we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. We want to feel like we're a part of something important, something lasting, something that matters. We see this, for example, in our obsession as a culture with celebrity. Why do we care about celebrities? Why do we care what they wear or who they're dating or whatever? Like in, in Nashville, in fact, the, the thing in Nashville was always there's a lot of celebrities here, but if you see one out, you don't talk to them, you don't bother them, you let them live their normal life, right? So you see Keith Urban at the mall or back in the day you would see Taylor Swift at Publix looking at cakes in the bakery aisle like Lindsay did one time and you just don't, you don't bug them, you don't bother them, right? 
Uh, and then all the Californians started moving here. No offense if you're from California, but now I, I think we don't do that anymore. We, we bother celebrities here now. But why, why is that? Why do we care? Why are we so obsessed with celebrities? We see this not just in our obsession with celebrities. We see it in our obsession with politics. Our drive, our desire to be a part of something bigger is expressed in this belief that the way to change the world and leave a lasting legacy in life is to get involved in the right political movement to be involved in the right kind of political activism. Politics today is just religion for a post-religious world. I'm sure there are scientists who would just explain away this drive for significance as a sort of evolutionary drive to procreate, right? We want to be a part of something lasting because we want to, we want to continue the human species, but is that, is that really all there is to it? A third longing that we have is for transcendence. The innate longing to connect to something big, something glorious, something way up above and out there. We see this again in various places. We see it in, uh, in the, the sort of uh, technological utopianism of Silicon Valley, right? This belief that, that if we just advance far enough in technology, we can create the perfect world. We can live forever. We don't even have to die anymore. We see it on the complete other end of the spectrum, in the sort of Ralph Waldo Emerson, like, go off the grid and live in nature type of thing. That's how you connect with transcendence. We see it, perhaps more than anywhere else uh, in our culture's absolute obsession with sex. Why, why is the West so obsessed with sex? It's because we think that you can find transcendence there. And in fact, the unique sadness of our culture's view of sex is we actually think that it can satisfy all of these deep soul cravings, including the next one, fourth, intimacy. We all desire to be deeply known and deeply loved. We all desire to be deeply known and deeply loved. And the world tells us, go find that in sex. But even in the church, what are we told? In the church, we look for that in marriage. We're told that marriage is the appropriate outlet for intimacy. But turns out, if you're not married, bummer, no intimacy for you. And so we, we, we crave and idolize marriage as the only route to intimacy. Fifth, we all long for community. We all want a place to belong. Um, I haven't been to Gatlinburg in about a decade, but I went a few times in college. And, I, you know, Gatlinburg is like a hub for different kinds of SEC fans. And so I would like to play this little game where whenever I would see somebody wearing SEC gear, Georgia or Ole Miss or Alabama or Auburn, I would, I would holler out their team's catchphrase to them just to see if they would respond. Uh, so I'd see a Georgia fan walking by and say, go dogs!" Or I'd see an Alabama fan and say, roll tide. I'd see a Tennessee fan and just keep walking. Uh, <laughs> but almost all of them would respond in kind, right? What's with that? We just have this desire to be a part of a group, to be a part of a community, to be with other people who are into the same things we are. Again, this is another expression, another expression of this is in politics. We see it in, in the political tribalism of our day. Guys, we're, we're coming up on another election. And it's going to be ugly again. And the temptation toward tribalism is going to come back stronger than ever. I have no doubt. We're only a year and a half in. And our, I tell people when they ask, how's, how's church going? I say, one, I say, I'm not sure, but two, I say, our, our community is like our superpower. If we have a superpower, it's the way that people at our church are just connected to one another and in each other's lives. But I'm certain that even with that being the case, uh, this tribalism will probably threaten some friendships even in our church. 
we get to election season, some of you are going to start looking sideways at each other based on your political preferences. Tribalism shows our innate longing for community, but it's actually just an ironic offshoot of individualism. Because in the absence of real community, we become isolated, and in isolation, we get scared of other people, of other ideas, of other worldviews, and when we get scared, we join a tribe to protect us. I've quoted this before, and I think it's so, so good. David Brooks writes that community is based on common humanity, but tribalism is based on a common foe. Tribalism is always building boundaries and creating friend-enemy distinctions. Politics is war. Ideas are combat. It's kill or be killed. Mistrust, he says, is the tribalist worldview. Tribalism is community for lonely narcissists. I love that line. (laughs) Tribalism is community for lonely narcissists. The last thing that we all crave is morality. We all want to know that, that, that... we, we all want to know the right way of living, and we all want others to be held accountable to living that way. Um, can we just stop pretending that we live in a world of moral relativism? When I was in high school, I went to a Christian high school, and like the big boogeyman of postmodernism was that, that people are going to have you know, this moral relativity approach, and they're going to say, you can have your morality, and I can have my morality. But on the streets, nobody lives like that. From the far-right, Bible-thumping, funeral-protesting conservative to the far-left, raging, screaming, protesting activist, everybody has a moral code. And everybody in between has a moral code. And everybody thinks that you should be held accountable to their moral code. But nobody actually follows their own moral code. C.S. Lewis, I quote this all the time, but he says in in, uh, Mere Christianity, there's two things that are true of all people across all cultures. One is that we know there's a certain way that we should live, and two, that nobody lives that way. And so we all believe there's a moral code, we all disagree about what it is, and we're all moral hypocrites. Meaning, significance, transcendence, intimacy, community, and morality. We all crave these things at a soul level, but as I hope to have shown just a little bit, I don't think that the places that we look for them can actually provide them. But I think that Christianity can Or more specifically, I think the gospel can. How? Through what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. We've spent the last several weeks looking at what I would call the the first gospel dynamic in the book of Galatians. This this powerful reality that, that you can say, Christ died for me. The recognition that I have not lived up to the standard, I've not lived up to the standard of God's law, and so I'm condemned under the weight and the the condemnation and the power of the law, but Jesus did live up to that standard. He died for me to pay the penalty so that I wouldn't have to pay it, and now I can be free of the law. I can be free of the pressure to perform. I receive the verdict first, and then the performance comes after, not the other way around. But there's a, a second gospel dynamic in Galatians. It's not as prominent because it's not under threat in Galatia, uh, but it keeps poking its head up in chapters 2, 3, and 4, and then Paul's going to devote chapter 5 to it, and it is this, Christ lives in me. First, Christ died for me. Second, Christ lives in me. But what does that mean? What does it mean that Christ lives in you? So I'm going to take a detour and talk about this, and we'll come back to those six things that I mentioned. It means that you have a totally new life. It means your life is totally new and totally different. It means that there's a total identification of you and Jesus. 
that you now are, your identity is wrapped up in him and his identity is wrapped up in the church. It means that you are completely united to Christ where he is, which means right now you're sitting in a pew in East Nashville, Tennessee, and you're sitting at the right hand of God the Father in Christ. In Galatians, it means in particular the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of Christ comes and takes up residence in your life. We see this in chapter 3, verse 2. Paul says, upon believing, the Galatians received the Holy Spirit. We see it in chapter 3, verse 14. Paul talks about blessing. Uh, he's, he's pulling back on this promise to Abraham from the Old Testament and the promise that God made to him, I will be your God, you'll be my people, I'll bless you. What was that blessing? In the Bible, God's blessing is his intimate presence with someone. And as the story plays out, we see that it's not just his intimate presence with someone, but in someone. Jesus says in John 14, 16, and 17, I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever He is the spirit of truth. He remains with you and he will be in you. The spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, is sent by the Father and the Son not just to be near us, not just to be beside us, but to actually live in us. John 7, Jesus is describing this and he's at a festival and he just gets up. You know, some of the things that Jesus said are so common to us now that we don't realize how weird they are or how awkward they are. But he just gets up in front of this group of people and he says, if anybody's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. The one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. What would you do if you were at a party and somebody got up and said that? Uh, Jesus is pulling on Ezekiel 47. It's this vision that this Old Testament prophet Ezekiel got where he sees the temple of God. Now remember, the temple is the place where God's presence is. God's presence comes and fills the temple. and It's the place where people go to have an experience, an encounter with the presence of God. And in this vision, Ezekiel sees water flowing from the temple. And it starts as this little stream, and it gets bigger and bigger, and it turns into this river that's so wide and rushing so fast that he can't cross it anymore. And the the water is a picture of the, the presence of God flowing out of the temple. And Jesus is saying in John 7, you're going to be the temple now. The Father and I are going to send you somebody. And if you believe in me, the presence of God is going to actually live in you and fill you and flow out of you. The very life of God, the creator of all things, is actually in you. Which is why Peter can say in 2 Peter 1, Through the gospel, you are partakers of the divine nature. The the very nature of God is living in you. Talk about the life that you're looking for. Talk about the the access to every meaningful thing. This is what Jesus calls eternal life, which is about living forever. But first and foremost, it's about quality, even before it's about quantity. It's what he calls abundant life. It's the good life. And it gives us all the things that we most long for. It gives us meaning. It tells us that Asteroid City is wrong. (laughs) And that the main character of Crime and Punishment is wrong. That there is meaning and you can know it and you can be completely wrapped up in it in a way that soaks every moment of your life with meaning. It gives us significance. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a trilogy of books called the Space Trilogy, which... um, is, it just is. Uh, if you've read it, you know what I mean. Some people love it, and some people think it's the weirdest, most awful series of books ever written. But the main character is just walking down the road one night, and he hears some people talking in a house, and he goes in, and before you know it, 
he is wrapped up in and plays this like critical role in the most, like this interplanetary mission that is the most important thing that could ever happen imaginable that is literally to save the human race. And that's kind of like what it is becoming a Christian. You look for significance and you're just walking down the road one day and all of a sudden you're caught up in the greatest story and the most important mission imaginable that's about saving the human race. You didn't ask for it, you didn't go looking for it, but it, it just finds you. That's what it is to have the life of Christ in you. The life of Christ in you gives you transcendence. Marilyn Robinson is an author and uh, essayist, novelist, former lit literature professor, and she um, randomly stumbled upon the writings of Jonathan Edwards when she was in college. She says, when I was in college, I felt gloomily captive to the determinism of modern thought. She said, all, all the modern philosophies that I were caught up in just made the world so meaningless. They were so mundane. They were so just fixed and determined. There was nothing magical about them. And she said, I, I was troubled by all this for years, and then I was assigned by a philosophy professor to read Jonathan Edwards' treatise, The Great Christian Doctrine of Original Sin Defended, Part 4, Chapter 3. And I found in it a glorious footnote on moonlight and was liberated. <laughs> in a New Yorker profile of, of Robinson, it says that in this footnote, Edwards observes that although moonlight seems permanent, its brightness is continually being renewed. And it says an 18th century evangel evangelist articulated what she had always felt, that existence itself is miraculous. And that at any moment, the luminousness of the world could be revoked instead of sustained. It's saying that that true transcendence is available when you recognize the reality that the world is utterly miraculous. We say things like this. We just throw them out. Like, everything's a miracle. Every day's a miracle. No it's, no, it's not unless you understand this. Unless you understand that at every moment, God is sustaining all things through Christ and that you are in Christ and Christ is in you. When you realize that, you can look up from the mundane things of life and and be filled with this transcendence, and then look back down, and it changes everything that you do every day. And the gospel, of course, gives us intimacy. The desire, again, to be fully known and fully loved, but our pursuits of intimacy are hampered by the fear, rightfully so, that if anybody fully knew us, they would not fully love us. Our pursuit of intimacy always runs into that brick wall. The gospel takes away that fear. In the gospel, God says, look to the cross. And what does the cross say? It says, I fully know you. In fact, I know you better than you know yourself, and you're worse than you think you are. In fact, this is what had to happen because of how bad you are. And yet, I fully love you because I was willing to do this. I was willing to go there for you. The cross says, as Tim Keller put it, that you are more sinful than you could ever dare to admit, but you are more loved than you could ever dare to hope or dream. The life of Christ in us gives us community. How? Because when we share in Christ's life, we share in it with everyone else who shares in it, which means we're caught up in this web of community that includes people from every background and culture and language and skin color. The world cannot give us that. It just gives us tribalism. It says if, if people have a different identity than you, you have to hate them. 
But we in Christ have real, diverse, and yet united community with all others who are in him. And finally, the life of Christ gives us morality. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about this more when we get to chapter 5. But if the two gospel dynamics of Galatians are one, Christ died for me, and two, Christ lives in me, what they mean for us is I'm justified not by my own good works, but by faith because Christ died for me. And yet, I am now able to do good works because Christ lives in me. In case you were starting to think over the last several weeks of just emphasizing justification by faith, justification by faith. The verdict comes before the performance. You don't have to do anything you just receive. In case you were starting to wonder, then what's the incentive for living a good life? What's the incentive for living a moral life? The answer is only when we have received Christ's life in us can we even begin to be moral. I went to a, um, a Christian school and growing up, Throughout my different grades, there were various ways of trying to teach us to be moral people. But in one, one or two years, we had uh, these little envelopes, these little folders that had all the like laminated fruits of the Spirit in them. And if we misbehaved in class, whatever fruit we weren't displaying would be pulled from the folder. So it was a miracle if I got home with the self-control fruit still intact. Uh, but it, it struck me later throughout the years I'm sure they meant well. This is literally the exact opposite of the gospel. <laughs> it's tr they're trying to make good people by teaching them to be moral. And the gospel says, you have to become a good person first, and then you become moral. And how do you become a good person? The Bible uses the image of a tree everywhere, right? A bad tree can't produce good fruit. You have to become a good tree. That happens by faith in Christ, and then you can produce fruit. As Martin Luther put it, you, uh, you don't pick trees from apples. You pick apples from trees. Now, the, this is the life of Christ in you. It's the life that we're longing for. How do we get it? Lest you think this is some sort of uh, kind of prosperity gospel sermon where I just tell you that being a Christian is awesome and if you just become a Christian, your life will be amazing and you'll have everything you ever wanted. Uh, here's how you get this life. You die. I don't mean you die, die. Um, it's not like this just comes after, after your body dies. But you die to yourself. Look back at what Paul says. He says, Christ lives in me. Okay, work backwards. How does Christ live in you? I no longer live. Why do you no longer live? Because I've been crucified with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. Do you remember the invitation of Jesus in the Gospel of Mark? This is only a few months back, right, that we were working through Mark. And we get to the, the crux of the gospel, chapter 8. And what does Jesus say? He says, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. He says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Jesus says, do you want to follow me? There's life where I'm going. You can have life. You can have true life, the good life, abundant life. But you have to die. The world says, do you want meaning? Create it for yourself. Do you want significance? Go find it. Do you want transcendence, intimacy, community, morality? Go make it. Go do it. Go find it for yourself. And this is offered to us as freedom? That's not freedom. That is a crushing weight and responsibility that no human can bear. No human can bear the weight of being told, create your own morality and transcendence and community. And we're, we're proving that as a society. No society in the history of the world has ever taken on as a group project the, the attempt to build our own meaning and significance and purpose in life. And it's, it's destroying us. 
we wonder why we have a mental health crisis. We wonder why deaths of despair are rising. We wonder why we're more divided than ever. Are you still trying to find these things on your own? Are you still trying to find the, the essential ingredients to life on your own? Uh, you have to die to that. You have to die to that, that control over your own life. You have to, to die to your own authority, your own desires, your own wishes. There's a beautiful example of this I came across, just been reading, started reading this week, the Gospel of Luke. And Mary, in the first chapter, has quite a night. She's visited by an angel. She's a teenage girl, and she's engaged to be married. And the angel says, you're going to have a baby. And I don't mean after you get married. You're, you're going to be pregnant before you get married. And Joseph's not going to be the dad. In fact, this is going to be a special child. <laughs> He's going to be divine. There isn't going to be an earthly dad. Uh, and, and you're going to have the baby, and he's going to be the savior of the world. She didn't sign up for that. That wasn't on her bingo card. <laughs> that wasn't in her five-year plan to be a teenage mom in a culture where she has to tell her, her fiancé, I'm pregnant, and it's not you. She has to tell her parents, I'm pregnant, but I promise nothing happened. She has to be shamed by her community. Her whole life is going to be different. She didn't sign up for that, but what did she say? She said, I'm the Lord's servant. Let it be done to me as you have said. What, that is a beautiful picture of the type of response that Jesus calls us to. Listen, I understand that in our day of self-expression and self-creation and self-determination, the invitation of Jesus to come and die sounds unpleasant, to say the least. It sounds miserable. It sounds like the worst thing that could ever happen unless, unless you're exhausted unless you're just tired of the endless, ceaseless effort to create meaning and significance in your own life, unless you've been crushed under the weight of having to perform well enough, unless you're starting to get the sense that maybe I can't quite build the life that I imagined. You can get it. You can get the life that you long for. You can get the abundant life, the eternal life, the good life, but it comes at the price of death.